When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if it's your first time listening to the podcast, we would like to welcome you and uh, tell you some things that you need to know. Thing number one, if you like what you hear today, subscribe to the podcast. And if you're even uh, more interested in what's coming up, you can find us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. You can comment. Uh, let us know if you're liking it, which one was your favorite, which ones we should do next. You can find us on YouTube. And if you have been listening for a long time and you you would consider yourself a connoisseur of the Good Music Podcast, here's what you need to do. You need to get on our Patreon, which the link is in the episode description. You get early episodes and we are, for the first time today, we've been talking about it a lot. And anyone that's already on our Patreon knows this, but... We are starting, uh, the after hours is shifting to where we will be talking about the six worst songs of the artist that we're talking about today. And so we'll get progressively worse and we'll talk about why their songs are so bad. And we've been doing that for a little bit now. It kind of naturally trended that way. Yeah. And then we kind of collectively had the idea. It's like, hey, this is actually a really good, like, thing to make like a segment and so if you like good music there is a good chance that you also like critiquing bad music like we do and so if that's what you um are interested in you want to be a part of that join us on uh patreon for the after hours so lucas set us up uh for today we kind of have an interesting part two yes we do so because this is the first episode of the month um, we dedicate those episodes to artists that we have already done episodes on and are getting to kind of dig deeper. And so the episode today is on David Bowie, one of the most um, iconic and most recognizable artists of all time. And in our first episode, we looked at at the first character that he created in this long list of characters, uh, Ziggy Stardust. And so we looked at all the music of kind of him rising up to fame, uh, all culminating with that, with that big record, Ziggy Stardust, or the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which is a mouthful of an album to say. 
Um, but that's the album that turned him into a star, and we kind of just left it hanging right there last time. And so this episode, we're finally ready for the next chapter of Bowie's career, as well as the next character. Really, there's kind of two characters in this episode, but there's definitely one that's way more recognizable than the other. And so I'm just going to roll it all together, and we're going to be talking about Aladdin Sane. So this this period of Bowie lasts for just a couple years. Um, really, you could say that the Ziggy era only lasts for one album, because he's only Ziggy for one record, and the albums before it are just kind of the lead-up to it. Um, but the Aladdin Sane period is is pretty much multiple personas, but it's all fits the same narrative of David Bowie grappling with his newfound fame. And even though he was working for quite a long time to get to this point, it was an all of a sudden meteoropic rise. Um to stardom when that Ziggy Stardust album came out. Like he went from really being in the underground to being the biggest star in the world. There was no like, you know, kind of warm up to get to that point. It was very sudden. And so uh, the next three albums after that, and that's, that's what this period entails. It entails a three album period, although we're only going to be taking music from two of those albums because one of them is a covers album. And we're looking at the albums Aladdin Sane, Pinups, and Diamond Dogs. And that's pretty much what you would call the second half of Bowie's glam phase. And it's going to, this is going to be the beginning of what, what we see in Bowie as him becoming a musical chameleon where he's able to really the key to his success in hanging around and being relevant for as long as he was, um, his ability to shift and adapt to the styles and the trends and to not ever become irrelevant. And we start to see that here in this period. Now, I noticed that we have two albums only on this six-song set. Is there a reason we don't have pinups represented or is it just could not fit in the set? Um, well, there's there's two reasons, mainly. First off, it's a covers album, so it's not really going to be authentic Bowie. And second off, it's, for the most part, not a very good album. Okay. Um, it's, it's considered one of his least essential records. I think it's something that if we, you know, if we go through his timeline and then if we want to kind of go back and just pick up some... Uh, deeper cuts in different eras we might pull some from there but in my opinion it's not necessary for telling this chapter of the story it was kind of and it was more of a um like a like a throwaway record and you can really feel it the the covers were not very well picked um, I can tell you don't and, like cover albums. <laughs> I actually do. You, um, you were bashing Diver Down, and now you're bashing Pinups. Here's the thing. Um, 
like I look at something like Garage Inc. by Metallica. I love that album. That's true. And I think that I'm not someone that's against covers. I'm against covers whenever they're made because they're either filling a contractual obligation or they're lazy. And a lot of times that's what cover albums are. It, whenever people make covers albums, they have a specific vision that they're intent on executing and it's well thought out then yeah i love cover albums but most of the time <laughs> cover albums are meant to just be like vanity projects pretty much or or like busy work like to just show the record company yeah. you know you like say if they're wanting to get out of a a record deal but the in the contract it said you had to, you're obligated to make seven albums for us and you've only made six, then a lot of artists will just make a covers album real quick just to fulfill yeah, that and get out. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what years specifically are we talking about here? So we are looking at um, 74 and 75. It's a very short time oh, period. Wow. And I can I can fact check those years real quick, but I'm uh, actually it's seventy three and seventy four. Okay. Not seventy four, mm-hmm. seventy five. So we our first episode was basically everything from sixty seven to seventy two then. Yeah, although I do skip the first record. Right. Pretty much it's sixty nine to seventy two. Okay. Um, but this is we're going to be taking a very close microscope to this period of his life because this is probably where his his most important metamorphosis happens. So let's talk about David Bowie and then how that relates to Aladdin saying like how it manifests in that character because you said just now you know there's a big metamorphosis in his life. Kind of talk about the changes that his life has gone through since Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. So David Bowie was always um, considered an auteur, even in his early days. Like he was kind of never seen as someone that was like, you know, a big pop star. He you know, excluding the first record when he's still trying to figure out who he is. By his second album in 69, um, he's already starting to make brilliant records. And you can tell that he has this very Mm -hmm. sophisticated palette for songwriting and for the way that he puts songs together. You know, he's not just another Paul McCartney or... Um, you know, Brian Wilson, that's more of a traditional pop songwriter, even though I guess you you wouldn't say they were traditional at that time, but they're considered traditional now. David Bowie has always kind of been a a fringe artist that just happened to really capture the world in a special way. Mm-hmm. I would say really no one else has done it quite like him. He 
really crafts this um, this artist persona about him all the way up to Ziggy Stardust. And Ziggy Stardust is really the first commercial record that he makes. His first uh, three albums, and when I say that, I, I really do exclude that first record. Because... <laughs> Because the first record is self-titled, and then the second album is self-titled, so you can tell that there's this intentional like leave that behind. Now this is the real beginning. Um, the first three albums, self-titled "Man Who Sold the World" and "Hunky Dory," are very um, art rock records, mm-hmm. but they're very expertly created. And Ziggy Stardust is a very radio-friendly record. And it's like he's taken, you know, he's, but he's still writing very smart pop songs. But he, at that point, was able to put them in a package that's very easily digestible, as well as he was, he saw where glam rock was starting to really boom in Europe. And, um, you know, he is a British artist, for those of you that don't know. Uh, he was able to kind of tap into what was going on there. And really, he kind of hijacked it because he, even though he's credited with popularizing the glam movement, he's not the inventor of it like everyone kind of assumes he is. Hmm. You really have to give that credit to T-Rex, who... Uh, got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Um, their leader, Mark Bolin, was a very close friend of David Bowie's, and he was like the creator and originator of glam movement, which uh, glam was one of the most important music movements of the early 70s. You know, that's where, you know, without them, you wouldn't have Queen. You wouldn't have... Um, hmm you know, all of those, those big glamorous bands that, you know, were dressing in outrageous clothes and wearing makeup and nail polish, the androgynous aspect of it, um, that it stems from Bowie in the sense that he was the first one to be a superstar. Yeah. Um, but you do have to give the credit to Mark Bowman and T-Rex for, for popularizing and they got really big in Europe. They just were never able to break over to America, which Bowie did. Um, Ziggy Stardust was a massive record. One of the big records of the early seventies. And all of a sudden now he, here's this guy that um, was not, he's not like this big, um, you know, like he's not this big superstar personality. He really kind of creates this new um, type of superstar where he almost feels like he's from another world, like he's an alien. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of throughout his characters, you have this recurring theme of this otherworldly presence about him that there's just, it's almost like he's an alien that's gotten really good at mimicking human behavior, but he like doesn't have it all the way. (laughs) 
And of course, Ziggy Sardis was the first time that he really personified that. And so all of a sudden now he is at the center of the spotlight. I would say in 73 that he was the biggest star in the world. And so when you get to Aladdin Sane, he has called it Ziggy Goes to America. And so because when he was promoting Ziggy Stardust, that was his first time to tour and play in America. And it was his, really his first taste of America. And it was a it was a life altering experience for him because he didn't realize how crazy America was. Um, he really got into hardcore drugs while he was on his first tour in America. He he developed a very famous cocaine addiction around this time that would lead to the transformation into the character we'll talk about in our volume three, which is the Thin White Duke. Mm. Um, and just experiencing fame on a worldwide level, you actually kind of start to, and he even says this, that he felt like he actually started to go a little insane. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lad insane is. It's a pun. It's a lad insane. Oh, I knew there was insane somewhere, but I didn't, I couldn't piece it together. That's kind of clever. Mm-hmm. And so that's, and of course, you know, it gave us our most iconic Bowie image with him with the lightning bolt bolt across his face. Yeah. And even that in of itself is meant to signify that concept because he said that the lightning bolt um, is a metaphor for schizophrenia, that there's a that there's a divide and a storm inside the mind. Hmm. Now his he actually has schizophrenia run in his family. His brother and his mother had it, hmm. and one of his greatest fears especially at that time because uh, schizophrenia typically is a mental disorder that doesn't uh, manifest itself until your mid to late twenties, which he was at that point. And um, he said that that was his greatest fear was that he would go mad like his brother and his mother. Mm. And that starts to make itself available or present in his music because you would think that after you have a worldwide smash like Ziggy Stardust that the next album would be um, like this big radio friendly record and he kind of does the opposite Hmm. he makes he intentionally makes a very difficult very experimental avant-garde record that still ends up becoming a big smash. It's <laughs> funny. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of showing now that even in this early period, he's playing by his own rules. He's able to create this image about him and this uh, fantasy about him that he can really make whatever music he wants. But at the same time, he always knows what trends are coming around the corner. And this Mm. was the secret to his long success. He never 
stayed somewhere for too long. Because by the time we get to Diamond Dogs, glam in of itself is starting to wind down. And Bowie knew that if he continued to be a glam artist, that he was going to struggle because glam itself was going out. And so he actually does a um, preemptive transformation before glam is completely uh, out. He's already moved on to the next thing. Do you think that he moved on to the next thing? on purpose or do you think that's just the kind of person that he was because it sounds like he's like not chasing being relevant and popular no and i think that there's a little bit of both going on i i do believe that it's intentional because he makes very specific um decisions like when he talks when he would talk at back at that time about the stuff he would talk about killing these characters like you would say, Ziggy Stardust is dead. Aladdin Sane is dead. Halloween Jack is dead. You know, now we're on to the next thing. Hmm. But he never picked the the where he would go was never what was in at that time. Yeah. But it would it would become in, and a large part it would become in thanks to him. Yeah. He would bring something that's in the underground up to the mainstream. And I would say that no one else in popular music has been better at that than him. You, you, you see a lot of artists try, where they try to get experimental, they try to step away from doing what they are known for and go into new areas. And I guarantee that most of them do it because David Bowie did it. <laughs> he was really kind of the first artist to reinvent himself so drastically so often and have it work every single time well, i think after a while you you become you you become less of a fan of what the person does and more of a fan of them as a person yeah mm-hmm. like people people stop listening to david bowie because they just i mean they still love his music but they're more it's like david bowie's thing becomes like being a different thing and people that Mm -hmm. are attracted to that will just be super fans for forever yeah and it also does it really helps him that he was just one of the greatest songwriters of all time and so he just had the ability that it didn't matter i would look at freddie mercury the same way that he was able to write so many great songs in so many different styles so who else was around just, in like 73 74 like the 75 era? so this so his entourage um consisted of guys like lou reed whoa um iggy okay. uh pretty much the, the the big the big three of his entourage was him lou reed and iggy pop they were kind of all partners in crime together. I would not have expected Lou Reed. Oh yeah, he was he was kind of the king of the avant-garde underground for quite a while. That's what the Velvet Underground was. They were really kind of the first ever avant-garde art rock band back in 67. Um you could you could really say that that David Bowie pulled a lot of what he did 
from Lou Reed. And then Iggy Pop, he's much more known for his antics and his um, having a hand in birthing punk rock. But if you really listen to a lot of the Stooges records, there's also a very serious avant-garde leaning to some of their stuff as well. And that's something that I think would be very interesting to delve into when we do albums on them hmm. or not albums episodes. Yes. Yeah. But like on the global stage, who else was in play in the early? 70s? Um, I would say that the, uh, the Rolling Stones were probably the biggest band in the world at that point, because when the beat, cause the Beatles broke up in 70 and when that happened, uh, the Rolling Stones were really able to kind of step forward and, have what's what's considered their classic period um they really their classic period was from like 68 to 73 pretty much Mm -hmm. and so you know as far as bands they're really big at that point um another titan of the glam scene at that time was elton john he um in 73 released goodbye yellow brick road which was one of the other really huge albums of the early 70s um stevie wonder was really coming into his own at this point um at this time is when you're he's releasing superstition and higher ground and um all those great songs um you also have um, Led Zeppelin is probably the is was at their prime at this point. Wow! Um, so a this ton is of just, stuff. That's around the time. <laughs> yeah. So he was a part of a wave uh-huh. of just a ton of other good stuff. The seventies was was really the glory age of rock and roll. And there was just there were so many huge rock records. Mm-hmm that time um you also had paul mccartney with his solo career which in my opinion he had the the biggest solo career of all the beatles he had tons of number one hits as a solo artist and even several years had the biggest selling songs of the year which none of the other beatles had john lennon i found out only had one solo number one imagine no it wasn't even imagine It was actually uh, his very last one that went number one after he got shot um, in 1980, which was uh, um, feels like starting over. I've never even heard that song. Well, maybe I have. It's you, I guarantee you've heard it. It's a I'm huge a song. John it's Lennon. a really great I'm not song. A John Lennon guy. I'm a Paul McCartney guy. So. But Paul, yeah, Paul had a huge... And he still does. Didn't he release an album like two years ago? Yeah, he's actually just announced his next album that's coming out. Oh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm, It got announced like a couple days ago. Well, that's news. That's music news right there. mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, David Bowie, he just always had an ear for what was coming next and was just always able to reinvent himself. And I think also 
part of the reason was he had a very restless musical spirit as well as he ha- he was someone that struggled with his own identity a lot of people postulate that that's why he was always creating these characters yeah well it could be a very mild form of schizophrenia if that were in this family yeah and it could also be his way of maybe perhaps dealing with mm-hmm. that so um he's this is i won't say this is the darkest period of bowie's career because i'll say that part comes next but this is this is he immediate after wanting it so badly for so long to have fame as soon as he gets it he instantly hates it man um he he very quickly realizes that it's not what he wants and he hates the commercial expectations that are put upon him because of course as soon as ziggy gets big everyone's just wanting him to do the same thing again and again no yeah and he's just like no i don't want to do that uh, which is this isn't the era where he writes fame the song no um so that's actually on the album right after diamond dogs which is really a transitional record it kind of doesn't fit squarely in any period it's a really a one-off record i almost included it in this episode but it didn't feel right Mm -hmm. because uh young americans is a one-time album where he does like a soul record hmm crazy and it's it's really good yeah but it doesn't really fit with the the second half of his glam period and it doesn't fit with his uh german electronic experimental period that follows afterward well that means that it totally fits because it sounds like none of those things fit (laughs) yeah I guess just that in the other periods you have more albums that kind of fit together. And this one is just kind of like this one random sore thumb that is just right in the middle. But it's what it is. It's it's the album where he's shedding completely his glam persona. And that's what Diamond Dogs is. Diamond Dogs is kind of his last hurrah of... And really you could say that it's it's one of the last great glam records um it's was meant to be a concept record on 1984 Mm -hmm. but um george orwell's estate denied him the rights to do it so he just took the basic story and created his own version of it hmm but because of the fact that he wasn't able to execute his original vision, the album doesn't have really a coherent story yeah. through. In fact, some of the song titles still bear 1984 lingo, like Big Brother and the song 1984. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, he that's really kind of his that album is his farewell to glam and it's a very dark heavy record and you can just tell that he's it's almost like he's challenging 
his listeners to go, are you still with me? Hmm. Yeah, certainly right from the opening, what, what is, I assume would be the opening, is already a little yes. bit jarring. You have to listen to it multiple yeah. times before your ears are like, okay, I'm going to actually pay attention instead of freaking out. And so I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like, it's a really challenging thing to listen to. And then same thing with the with the other kind of epic three song deal that we have going on towards the middle of the set. That one was a little bit more palatable. I actually really liked both of those. I ended up liking both of them. And we can talk about that later. But it's definitely not normal music it or mm-hmm. it doesn't have the philosophy behind it of normal music maybe if you're if your ears are listening to it for the most part it is like it's all the 12 tone scales you know four mm-hmm. four like it makes musical sense but like there's something there's like the x factor behind it that it's just it's not it is otherworldly in a way it's 12 tones yeah. but i feel like the oh, darn it i'm already I'm already jumping at the bit to get into the second part, but like <laughs> the get the the guitars, I don't feel like are like are tu- like are tuned correctly, you know, on purpose, you know. We can like, talk specifics like, when we get there, but I think I know why that sounds that way. So, like there, and the, there's like effects that are just over everything oh. that just make it oh, sound. Oh, for sure, there's so many effects on that. Whole... Like I don't think everything is like tonally together. The in- but the intro. Purpose of that album is so effect heavy on every thing (laughs) anyway yeah so it's you know he's it's it's just very interesting because had any other artist made a move like this especially like you know it's just it's pretty crazy to me because I feel like in order for most artists to pull off albums like this successfully, they kind of have to build up a lot of goodwill. And they have to, I think, and they have to bo- build an image for themselves. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just it's just amazing how quickly Bowie got to that point. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Ziggy Stardust, bam, huge, and then instantly he's already moving mm-hmm. in this direction. Yeah. And so, does, does, did he want the, like we we've talked about him, and maybe this is the whole conflict. Like we've talked about him hating the fame, but we've also talked about him being so on the cusp of all the musical trends, and we've talked about him doing the art rock, and we've talked about like it seems like he kind of has a love hate relationship with like what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, he definitely understood that unless he has hits, he's not going to get to do what he really wants to do. And I think that more so than most other musicians, he was really good at figuring out how to um, satisfy the masses as well as satisfy his own musical what, need what do you for think ad- he really adventure. I think that he really just wanted to make the music he wanted to make. And I think that that's the underlying thing of everything. 
what he, whenever he was searching for these new trends, he always found something that he liked. Yeah. He wasn't ever picking genres that out of just right. pure calculating, oh, well, I believe that this is going to be the next thing. I don't like it very much, but I'm still going to yeah. do it. <laughs> You know, it was all stuff that really spoke to me, and he just figured out a way to make it available on a wide uh, yeah, he's, he's scale. He's not copying Fleetwood Mac. No, <laughs> it, it very much sounds to me the way you explain it that he he seems to be just a music appreciator of all kinds, and he can't do all of them at the same time. So he has to do it in phases. That's what it's sounding like to me. Because, I mean, we all like multiple genres. And it really sucks that usually we, as listeners, end up limiting artists by a specific genre. I mean, like, when you, lis- when you listen to Anthrax, you pretty much know what you're going to get. And that begs the question, you know, is that right or wrong? Are we really going to be okay if they came out with, like, a country record, you know? I'm sure it'd be fantastic if they did it, but but David Bowie really kind of the way you're explaining it, he goes through many different genres, and that's always what he's been. And so to us, it's not, or at least the way I I hear it, it's not David Bowie being his avant-garde, David Bowie being his glam rock, David Bowie being whatever. To me, it sounds like David Bowie. Yes, and I think and I think a big reason why it works so well for him is because of his unique voice. Yes. His voice is not – you can't put it in a box of being any kind of genre. Like when you hear his voice, you don't think that's a rock voice or that's a pop voice or that's a, a metal voice, which I think would hurt a lot of other people. Like you think of ACDC. And Brian Johnson, their lead singer. If he tried to sing country, it doesn't matter how good the country song is. His voice cannot do yeah. country. It'd be way too weird. <laughs> just, um, just weird enough for me to definitely listen to it, though. I mean, yeah, I'd listen out of curiosity, but like, it's, it's not going to be songs. <laughs> it's not, and it's not going to have crossover appeal (laughs) no and and he definitely i will say this he doesn't have if i were to have a list of the top 10 vocalists of all time david bowie would not be the first person i think of but he has such a good way of presenting his voice and he has such a good Mm -hmm. intuition for the way that different lyrics and different vowel sounds work with different notes that I think it really makes up for it. And I would say as a whole, he's a fantastic vocalist. Technique, you can argue about that all day, but but he's got an understanding of harmony and and melody that so surpasses a lot of vocalists. I would say that probably no other vocalist has better utilized a strange what you would probably say naturally unappealing voice and figured out how to make it a universally loved voice better than David Bowie Mm -hmm. has 
He has a voice that literally nobody sounds like. He is uniquely himself. I would say there's no one even close to his voice. It's instantly recognizable, yet at the same time, for it being so uniquely his, he has so much range with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He can he it's very flexible. And that's what's just so amazing is because a voice like that normally you would shouldn't be flexible. And yet somehow he figured out how to do it. And I think that having that voice in particular is what really helps him to move from genre to genre because no matter what area he goes in, it will always sound like David Bowie because of that voice. Hmm. And because he figured out how to use it so well, he knows how to use it in different ways to benefit the new styles that he's in. But at the same time, it'll always be him. Yep. I would agree with that. And that's the feeling that I got from this from this set there's not a lot of songs on i would i think there isn't a single song on this entire set that i have heard before but it definitely sounded like a lot of the ziggy sardis songs because of his voice Mm -hmm. and it's not not necessarily because of the instrumentation or, or because of necessarily even the writing even though it definitely still has that david bowie x factor it's it's his voice and the way that he has that intuition of writing with with his voice. He understands his voice. Mm-hmm. Some artists will do this and they'll try to, uh, like what you said, put their voice in a, in a box and write a rock vocal melody with, you know, rock lyrics or whatever. But like yeah. David Bowie has an intuition for his voice, not the genre that he's in. And that's more important. And it's very rare that you'll find an artist do that. And those people end up being the greatest vocalists we think of, not because like they're great at finding or they're they're great technically, but because they understand their voice more than they understand the genre. Mm-hmm. Maybe well, he also does understand the genre, but he doesn't follow that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, unless you guys have anything else. I think we've already started to talk about the songs, so we definitely need to get there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we'll go ahead and take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six-ish songs, and I'll explain why that's an ish when we get there. Um, we're going to talk about the six songs that we picked for this set. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about David Bowie's next character, Aladdin Sane, who we're focusing on in this episode. This is a volume two, so if you haven't listened to our previous episode on David Bowie, be sure to check that out. And as this is a volume two, you all should be familiar with this next segment, our six song segment. But for those of you who are new, if this is your very first episode, you're kind of breaking the rules. 
but welcome. And Lucas, could you explain to those folks what we mean by this six song segment? What purpose does it serve? So uh, what we're doing here with these six songs is normally in the normal episode, we would be using these songs to introduce you to the artist in case you have never listened to them before or if you're not very familiar with them. But because this is a volume two, we are assuming that you have already listened to the previous episode where that is more of the goal. And in this episode, we are not picking songs for you to um, get to know who Bowie is. We're already assuming that you are at that point. And rather, the songs in this set are looking to uh, show us what chapter of his career David Bowie is in. So I'm not just picking six most popular songs of this period. I'm not picking what my six favorites are. I'm picking the six that are going to be able to best show us what who David Bowie was like during this period of, of his career and um, what kind of music he was making. And the way that you can listen to these songs is if you go to the link in the description of the episode take you to a Spotify playlist and it'll have not just this uh, set of songs, but also the songs from all of our other episodes as well. So make sure that you guys go check those out. And without any further ado, we can go ahead and get into the songs for this episode. So we start off uh, already pretty weird and pretty spooky with um, pretty much the first two songs I'm counting as one song, and that is Future Legend slash Diamond Dogs. So that begs the question, are these... Was that a, was that a pun intended? Does... Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, um, no, it was unintended, but I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, are these meant to be two songs by David Bowie? Um, no, I mean, pretty much this is kind of like your typical, um, you know, your typical move of an album, especially one that's got a concept to it is that you've got like the prologue opening song. Yeah. Which and that's pretty much what this is. Yeah. So future legend is meant to just kind of be the opener to the album. And I've been noticing lately that a lot of uh, rock albums are have been doing this, where you've got like that minute, minute and a half prelude song that just goes seamlessly into the first song. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to ease everybody into You're setting the pool, up the theme. You know? You're setting up the theme. So, yeah, that's what's going on here. I mean, yeah, you can call it its own individual song, but, you know, it's it doesn't have the effectiveness it has unless it's paired immediately with the following song. And because um, I love to create moods and mm -hmm. um, and a feeling that goes along with the songs in the set, you know, it uh, it felt right to me to to include the songs together as one package. So what? So Future Legend and Diamond Dogs, what are these about? So as I said in the previous segment, 
this was originally going to be his adaptation of 1984. And when he was denied the ability to make that, he decided instead to come up with his own concept, which became Diamond Dogs. Mm -hmm. And it's set in a post-apocalyptic New York. And the whole town is run by um, punks. But, like, he... And this is what's really interesting and also just shows that David knew where not just music was going, but kind of culture and society as well was going. He predicted what punks were going to be like before punk really exploded about two years before. Wow. And um, these punks he describes as being covered in fur coats and expensive jewelry but the reason they are is because they've looted all the stores and have taken everything for themselves. And so pretty much it's a it's a place of anarchy. He describes a place called Hunger City. And um, pretty much this is just a world where, you know, the, the weak overpower or the strong overpower the weak and, you know, the strong take what they want. And the diamond dogs would be kind of the the diamond because they've looted everything and they're super rich now, and the dogs because they're crazy like dogs, okay. as well as um, the fur coats that they wear make ah. them look like they have right. fur. Right. And the the opening of Future Legend when when you first hear all the weird sounds that are happening it is kind of like you're not going to pay attention to i mean to anyone who hasn't listened to the set i'm warning you like your ears will not allow you to pay attention to what david bowie's saying but if you go back (laughs) and listen to it a second time what he's saying is really poetic there's a lot of really good lines in in that opening when he says fleas the size of rats and rats the size of cats I didn't pick up on that the first time, but that's like really clever. And when he says something like red mutant eyes, there's the doubling effect there too. And, and the sound effects also play into a little bit of what he's saying. And although they're much louder in the mix than his voice, that's where your ears go. And they're also very, uh, I mean, they're intentionally jarring. I'm sure mm-hmm. and they're oh, yeah. they're just crazy. That's where your ears are going to go because you've never heard that before. Of course, you heard somebody recite a poem before, <laughs> but um, I mean, we've all been in middle school, you know. So it's it, I it it I like how instead of just being a which I love the intro to Number of the Beast. Don't get me wrong, but if he were to say something this long, just his voice, it would not be, it would not have the same effect and it would lose everyone's attention very quickly. And so it was a very, I think it was a very good choice for him to do this. And we ended up getting a really interesting mood that leads us perfectly into diamond dogs. This ain't rock and roll. This is genocide. Yep. 
It's so weird. Which is just weird. Like, how would you? Whatever. <laughs> how, the the fact that he could set that up and it just be like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like, you know. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Only again, only only Bowie could do it. Yep. Is I this would, truly I say just that... a concept record, or is this like a social critique? It's it's both. I mean, you know, he's he kind of had a a nihilistic view from I would say from probably Ziggy till the end of the 70s he um, was very much thinking that the end of the world was coming Uh, we'll even get more into that when we get to um, one of the later songs in the set about what he thought the world was truly gonna turn into and he uh, is pretty much just kind of showing the decay of society and, you know, really kind of, like I was saying, he was predicting actually quite accurately, obviously not, you know, the fact that Earth was going to be post-apocalyptic, but just kind of seeing where society was heading he was right in the prediction of kind of what the punks were going to be like. And so pretty much this is just like his, um, in the same way that 1984 itself was fiction and social commentary. Mm -hmm. um, He picked up on the fact that, you know, he could accomplish both things at the same time. I will say diamond dogs is pretty tame in comparison to a lot of the rest of the set. And that, really? that is by des- that is by design. Um, you know, I wanted to save the absolute weirdest stuff until we got to the very end. Yeah. Just to kind of, you know, not, now to say that we're easing in with future legends right. seems a strange... I feel like that sets but... the tone, but whenever we got into... After Future Legend going into Diamond Dogs, I was like, oh, all right. This is... Saying that it's pretty standard rock and roll, I think wouldn't give it enough service because there's some weird stuff in there like the I mean there's I mean it's David Bowie you know it's still David <laughs> yeah. Bowie right but in comparison <laughs> to some of the other songs coming up I mean it, it's pretty straightforward I, I will say yeah. that Future Legend is a prequel of what's to come yeah <laughs> and it's kind of a foreshadowing of what's mm-hmm. going to happen with this set but Diamond Dogs kind of brings us back and kind of tells us the musical story of how we get there with the with the first few songs of how we get to the craziness. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that was I think already we're in we're still in the first song and I think already that we're going to see this trend and th- I just noticed this I don't know if you meant to do this or not but I just noticed that. That that was a little bit of a foreshadowing. Yeah, that was that was intentional. Okay, but I, uh, is right. Diamond Dogs is very very tame. It's very normal. It's it's pretty guitar riff ish, and the vocal melody is pretty normal uh, for David Bowie. I will uh, say, what's going to catch people's eyes is the vocal effect and the guitar effect. I think yes. that's going to jar people. Yes, that, that too. To and the whoop, 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 or whatever that is. Yeah. 
Um, there are some weird sounds in here, and that's why I originally didn't like this song as much, and I really can't pick a favorite song for this set. There's just a lot of what? them are so good. Uh, I cannot pick a favorite. I'm sorry. I'm but very interested one, to hear what what Ethan's is going to be. This one it was definitely in the running, and had we had if we had done this recording yesterday, I would have said that this was my favorite song. Which I originally hated this song when I first heard the set. Wow, hate such a strong word. No, really, because of that annoying whoop whoop and the weird vocal effects and the it's just it was too much. But once my ears gotten used to it, I could appreciate it more, and I could appreciate the effect of it and what he was trying to do musically. I think that I think that's important mm-hmm. too for like those who are listening. Like if you don't. Real like if you listen to the other David Bowie episode, you didn't really like David Bowie so much, and you're kind of sitting through this episode just because you got nothing else to do. I encourage you listen again because it's definitely an acquired taste. And I would you, say you will get something out of it that you didn't think you ever would. I find myself talking about this more and more every episode, but I, there's diff there's so many different ways to add dissonance to a song. And whenever I started looking at the vocal effects and the guitar, like even like the guitar line in the middle, like the like that really, it's like a long bend, you know, like that's that's pretty pretty typical for guitar, I would think. But like, man, just everything that he was doing at first, I was like, oh, that's so weird and dissonant. And then I was like, oh, well, it's on purpose that it's dissonant. That it's like kind of, uh, I feel like also maybe adding to the social commentary, like the fact that this song is talking about what it's talking about, but it's still kind of like kind of OG rock and roll, you know, Mm -hmm, it's not like a sad song. It's not, it's not even like an aggressive song. I mean, it's pretty like, I mean, it's like a diner kind of song, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, that's true. And and, and I, but I also think having to do with like the city and like where where I mean the seventies was kind of the diner period, but it's like mm-hmm. but they added dissonance to like everything, so it's like something's a little off about it. And once I once I got past that, I was like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So let's talk about. Um... Bowie's role in this in the story so there is a character a new character that makes itself known it's it's one of his least known characters but it's a character called Halloween Jack and you could say that he's the main character of the story of Diamond Dogs and uh, he but he only is ever mentioned by name once in the whole album and it's in this song and he it's not really quite made clear if he is um the leader of the diamond dogs or if he is a renegade that lives by his own rules but is not part of the diamond dog uh gang and what he's what he's doing is he's talking to the female character of this story and kind of um telling her about the life that he lives 
and telling her about the diamond dogs and because she's a newcomer to the city and so he's it's almost like he's he's like a a rogue renegade tramp that is showing her around his city yeah and he's telling him and he's telling her about the diamond dogs so that would kind of but, be like part of the the song not being so doom and gloom it's sort of like he he's sort of apathetic to it a little bit yeah it's almost kind of like this is this is home this is the way it is and i know it this way hadn't been any other way Mm Hmm. yeah that's that's why i think that it's not yeah like why it's not aggressive or dark i mean yeah it's again it's got those dark undertones but it's still almost kind of like it's a pop song at its core. Yeah. You know, it's got a, it's got hooks. It's got, you know, a pretty uh, simple guitar line. And also, by the way, on this album, David Bowie plays guitar throughout the whole record. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But he does not on Aladdin Sane. Oh, okay. I'm sure he plays the piano there. No, he does not. (gasps) We'll, but we'll get to that. Okay, we'll get to that. That's interesting. Uh, I could have sworn that he was playing piano there. But uh, I have to say this chorus was what sealed the deal for me on really liking this song and really giving this song a chance. It's okay. a great chorus. It is a great chorus. It's not. It doesn't have a normal rhythm. And this is where I think that David Bowie's genius vocally shines that once again it's mm-hmm. not the most technically sung chorus but he has that intuition of what vowel sounds sound good where and when to have a very short line you know when he says young girl you know and then pauses it kind of lets you it lets it breathe a little bit and then he says you know they called him the diamond dogs and i thought that was that was such a really good musical I I don't think I could have written this course. I don't think anyone could have written this course and had it been objectively better because of the way that, that he was able to there's – there's a modulation. There's a key change. It's not quite perfectly rhythmic, so it's got a little bit of syncopation there, and it just – it's got the, the, the one, two – and then the final punch, you know, rhythm of the first two lines sort of being identical. And then you finally do that change up and everything is just, it comes full circle with, they call them the diamond dog. So I, I, yeah, I love this course. That's what made, that's what made me give it a chance. And that's what made me realize that this song really is genius. Both these songs technically, but yeah. All right, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> okay. Um, do you guys have anything else to add? I'm or are you ready, ready to move on? I'm ready to rebel. Rebel, rebel. <laughs> rebel, this, rebel. This, this, uh, yeah, this made me confuse me a little bit because there is the rebel yell by Billy Idol. And I uh-huh. always confused when I was really young. I'd always confuse David Bowie and Billy Idol for some reason, <laughs> and so it was really guess... kind of funny discovering that that David Bowie had a Rebel Rebel song as well. 
This is also off of Diamond Dogs. So is this immediately after the title song? No, it actually is not. Okay. So where does this piece up in the storyline? So this is at the, about the halfway point. And um, this is one of those songs where it's um, po- people think that this actually has nothing to do with the concept, that this was just a song that happened to be on the record that you know could be a hit single but that he was able to kind of make uh, make it ambiguous on whether it's part of the story so pretty much at this point um, Halloween Jack is kind of creating his own gang that's going to challenge the Diamond Dogs and this female character is kind of his his rallying cry um, she's starting to shed her clean image to become, you know, a rebel. Mm-hmm. But really what the song is about, is about his fan base. And, and really it's almost an autobiographical story for himself. You know, he's the one that, that can't tell if he's a boy or a girl. Hmm. And you know, because he was, he was, he's the ultimate androgynous figure in music. I would say that no one is more iconically androgynous than David Bowie. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was really the one that started that trend. And not only did other artists around him start to take on that idea, but also his fan base brought in a lot of the. I guess what you would call the early LGBTQ plus however many letters there are crowd. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he was, he was the, the leader of the outcasts and the misfits and the people that didn't feel like they had a place to belong. And so really this song is about all of his fans. Hmm. That's and, cool, actually. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you could see it being part of the concept story. That's why it's like, it's kind of a concept album, but yeah. it also kind of isn't. Well, there's always it's not, it's, your own themes in there. Yeah. And this, this song is probably the most obvious example of that. And of course, this is the big hit of the album and one of his most iconic songs. Really? I would say if anyone, if, anyone that's a David Bowie casual fan listens to this episode, this is going to be the one song they're like, oh yeah, I know this song. This is played on the radio all the time. Um, It's constantly included on all the lists online of top 10 best David Bowie songs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this, this was definitely one of his big 70s hits as well as this this song was pretty much like him saying goodbye to this, the glam rock era. This was his last big glam anthem before he fully moved away from it. Even though if you listen to the rest of the album, it's very obvious he's moving away from yeah. it. But then it's like you just have this one last um, slice of pure glam rock. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised. And the whole, the whole, that this song is in the top 10. I, I would say that I think that 
Rebel Rebel is probably my least favorite song in the set. Yeah, I would agree, honestly. <laughs> Not because it's bad. I, I, yeah, I don't think that the, the song is bad. And I, I can see why it would be a pop hit on, like, for David Bowie. But I'm surprised to hear that it's, like, so, I, I guess, acclaimed. I can, oh, yeah, this I, is one of his most revered songs. I can see it because of the themes. Sometimes the themes of a song are yeah. more important. You know, and I would say this yeah. is like, I guess musically, like there's one part musically, it like in my brain why I wouldn't like it, but I can see like with appealing to his fan base and and the simplicity of the music out, I think that this song would go far from. I mean, like what you said, it's like he wrote it in the studio, wanted him to write like something that could be a hit. And he wrote one, you know, so I can't blame, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's like he knew, he yeah. knew the format. He's like, good guitar lick, simple drums. Let's get some good lines in there and then ship it. And it worked. Yeah. So, yeah, because this is, this is definitely kind of one of those like rallying cry yeah. type of songs. Where it just, you know. Yep. It's calling all fans. Yep. Come and unite. But, but yeah, the 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 yeah. main the the main hook of this song is that guitar line. Yeah, that's true. It opens with that guitar line, and that's what the the vocal melody follows. It is kind of riff centered, riff centered song. So that that I have to ask is the other representation from this album before or after this song before would not have guessed okay yeah but and the we'll, actual we'll uh the actual listing is future legend diamond dogs then the song that's coming later the the trilogy of songs you would say and then this song and that's that's all of side one. Oh wow okay okay well when we get there we'll have to talk about that but um no i do agree with ethan this is not this is probably my least favorite song of the set. But not because it's bad. It's just it didn't stand out. I think I think this is this acts well as a palate cleanser. Yeah. After we had the weirdness of um Future Legend, and we didn't really get a break with Diamond Dogs, even though Diamond Dogs is very normal. Rebel Rebel was is very simple. It's such a simple song that you can almost kind of turn your brain off but still absorb the song Mm -hmm. and that that's something that you can't do with the rest of the set so we we had to have this song before we get to you know even the just the next song as simple as that one is so uh, it it serves well in the set yeah and I uh, I definitely wanted to have like because mm-hmm. for the most part I mean I guess Diamond Dogs is kind of a one of his more well known songs as well, but we're about um, to get into it. <laughs> yeah, we're about to pick and the punch. Yes, we are. The rest of the songs on the set are more deep cuts because even though he 
was huge during this period. Um, he actually doesn't have a whole lot of hit singles. It's rather the albums were big hits. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was kind of more like one, an album, he would have something like Rebel Rebel. And like also the the big single off of Aladdin Sane is not on this episode. It's called The Gene Genie. And pretty much it would have been picking either that song or Rebel Rebel, yeah. and I felt that Rebel Rebel would have been the better mm-hmm. selection I think it for this set. think after Diamond Dogs and before our next song. Oh, it fits, it fits great after yeah. Diamond Dogs. I'll say that. Coming in with that guitar line. Yes. So I think this is yeah, just I wanted an to have... attribute, though, to just David Bowie just being able to crank out a hit single whenever he feels like it and going yeah, back to what yeah, we're, and going As back in, and going and back to relevant, what we were talking about yeah. going back to what we were talking about in the first one it's like you can tell future legend Diamond Dogs and pretty much everything else on this is like him doing what he wants to artistically express and you can tell that Rebel Rebel not that it's like that he hated doing it but you can tell that that was that it's that one was the cop out that that it's like him this is the song that's paying the bills yes yeah. yeah he wrote this because he knew he needed to write it and then the rest of the way were were into david bowie's deep mind that yeah. that is one thing that i really don't like about the music industry but it's just it's just an unfortunate reality that every album tends to have that one song that the artist writes just so they can get the album sold. I would say that it's not so much in like metal and stuff where you have dream theater, write An entire album about a guy figuring out how he died in his previous life. And there's not a single hit song on that album, you know, all of them serve the story and musically are, are completely out there. Um, but it seems to me like when we go back to a lot of this old stuff that, well, okay. Yeah. Sort of, sort of old stuff. We're only, we're only in the seventies. I mean, we're talking about music in our music history episode. that's in like yeah. before <laughs> 1088. Uh, <laughs> this, this stuff around 40, 50 years ago, it, it it seems like we've had that theme of the album's done, but we need the hit. You know, like that's that's what happened with Cherry Pie. You know, the album was done. They were going to call it Uncle Tom's Cabin, but there was no hit. So they wrote Cherry Pie. And then the lead singer hated it. And it's like, that's so sad. But it's, it's very encouraging I guess to me that that David Bowie did that and I don't know the story behind whether or not he did that for that reason but if he did that that he was able to turn it into a song that served its purpose on the album and lyrically it was something that was very important to him and became like a like a fan favorite as well not just a not just a normie favorite and that's something that's really cool 
Yeah. I don't think... I I didn't come across anything of him saying that, like, he hated the song or was just like, I only wrote the song because there wasn't a hit single off of it. But, I mean, yeah, when you listen to the rest of the album, the rest of the album is very challenging. And this is the this is the by and far you know most yeah. accessible song, and you 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 gotta know that he did that intentionally. Yeah, that I mean, you just you know he's he knows the business now at this point. He knows that you know if he doesn't have a hit single on the record, that that's not going to be good. It's he can he knows he's got a put out a hit every now and then so that way he can keep doing what he wants to do and like we were saying earlier few people have been able to toe that line better than he has and even when he would do the ones that are just oh this is just the single he was still able to make them into these huge um, relatable hits that you know, have a special place in his catalog. Yeah. Like no one, no one in the David Bowie camp looks at Rebel Rebel and goes, "Ugh, this is this is the the yeah, the that. sellout song on the album." Like everyone loves this song, and I think if you can do that, you know, put out a hit single on an otherwise very tough record and have it be universally loved by not just the mass but your diehard fans as well i I mean you can't really ask for a better outcome than that yeah yeah so i think we can go ahead and move on to uh the next song let's so now we're we're gonna get into uh, aladdin sane with drive-in saturday this was another one that honestly was for the running in my favorite. This was the this was the other front runner, and it was because this... it was because of his lyrical, uh, and also just hit the way that he mixes the vocals kind of towards the bridge section, uh, uh-huh. how how he shows his vocal uh, diversity, versatility. That's the word. Diversability. His vocal versatility, (laughs) as well as the way that he perfectly sets up the chorus with that first verse. I I didn't pick up on it the first time, but once again, you know, as I listened to it more and more and more, I kind of started to understand what he was saying because I don't listen to lyrics first. You know, I always listen to music first. Same. Yeah, and so when I just happened to be able to discern the lyrics, you know, I was like, whoa, that's really, that's really profound, kind of. And I don't know the full story of the song, and you may have to fill us in. Well, this was one that I was really curious. I was going to ask you guys first what you thought the song was about. Okay. Um well, definitely, and especially since you're talking about it, I'm right. I want to know what you think. Definitely, Grant. the chorus, from what I understand, it's he's talking about like your typical drive-in movie, and it's like every movie's kind of the same, and I don't know if that's like necessarily 
a metaphor for like, oh, whatever relationship he's in or something is becoming mundane or it's, oh, I don't care about the mundane. I'm sticking with it anyway. I think it's one of those things. Ethan? I... First off, I would like to say this is my uh, this is my favorite song on the, oh. uh, the set. I mean, you picked a good one. <laughs> I I loved how um, I don't know. I loved how there's just so many different sounds. Like the sound palette of the entire song was was really good <laughs> yeah the and like what everything that grant said as well i think i would have before i would have said that this song because i didn't originally about dystopian future um well the the aladdin sane is not because oh, this aladdin. is this is off the Aladdin. this is off the aladdin sane record and Diamond Dogs is dystopian future, oh, but yeah. there is a dy- there is a dystopian element to this song. Well, that's because, what I was gonna say. Is like before I Bowie, was like, Bowie loves his dystopias. <laughs> Everyone does. It was like it. It's just such a weird song, man. At first, I thought it was a love story because it seemed like they, it's like they, it was like they were going to a movie, but I don't think, but, but it was also talking about like, like not knowing how to, like, it's like it was talking about love, but it was also talking about like not love. And I like like in the other parts, and I was just like, you know what? I just like the the sound palette. <laughs> and love the, and not love. The sound palette was amazing, amazing, amazing. It was like type O negative sort of like versatility with the vocals, which I know they're not known for that, but I really like them because of that. So, and it, I guess there's my typo negative plug. I do one every month. <laughs> When, whenever yeah, I you say do. whenever I say not love, I, I guess I, I don't just mean like any subject that's not love, but like specifically talking about like lack of love. Yeah, in the okay. chorus. What is it actually about? Yeah, that's my, my that's my real question. So this song is about a post-apocalyptic society <laughs> that has forgotten how to procreate and so they go to the drive-in to watch porno movies oh oh that's so they can learn how to so they can learn how to procreate again that's that's kind of about not love yeah so that's what i that's why i was asking i was just like so what do you mean by not love And of course, you know, there's there's some very um, sophisticated um, commentary through this. Pretty much just talking about how it's, you know, we now live in a culture that's sex first, love second. And 
you know, we don't, we have now this distorted view because that's where we, we learn about everything from is not um, from tradition and from, you know, our families, but from other inappropriate places. Mm-hmm. And so now they're, they're going to have an entire culture that thinks that that's the way that you procreate and not think that there's anything weird or strange about it. And that's why he uses the name. His name is always buddy. That's a, that's a porn actor name. (laughs) And so he's, so, so he's approaching it just going, huh, this is, this is interesting. Hmm. I didn't know that that's how you do that. Okay. Well, if, if it's on, if it's on the movie, then that must be that that's how you're supposed to do it in real life. That's crazy. And it's just kind of, it's kind of like the, a, a strange loss of innocence where it's grown people, but in the same way, you know, it's, it's the loss of potentially true connection. Yeah, I would say that in a way he sort of predicted it with like the whole online dating thing. Yeah, and that's true and as well. Scare, and he and he didn't even uh, comment on that possibility. But in in a way, there is kind of that same like we have taken that sex first, love second to the extreme there as well. In in some cases, and so I'm not saying that if you're like into the online dating thing that you're like that, you know, but, uh, well, Tinder is that way. Well, for the most part, you know, Tinder is, is one of those that's like that. And so it's, it's really interesting because every once in a while you'll have an artist or a writer like George Orwell, oddly enough, who's really good at predicting what society will be in like 70 years. And (laughs) like, they're very rare people, but, when they predict it, it's it's sometimes it's spot on, and so that's just crazy. That that that's what this song is really about. Uh huh. And again, the the way that you think about the songs from Aladdin saying is that he wrote this as a response to him going to America for the first time, and so you can you can think about just kind of you know, what he's singing about and related to America. You're just like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, (laughs) it does because it is. That's a little bit scary, actually, that that's what inspired him about this is our culture. Uh, Yeah. Wow. It's a, it was a, it's a culture that's, um, simultaneously very conservative and um, naive and at the same time also super um, free and liberal and rebellious. America is just one giant oxymoron, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> uh, but that also... Um, you know, not just lyrically, but musically, that's what, what gave him the inspiration to kind of 
add the doo-wop aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the album is also taking a lot of American music um, ideas and influences. So it's it's almost like it has this it has this fifties romance to it. Yeah. But then but then underneath it is this very dirty um message. And I think that those that's what gives it a good contrast is that you've got something that sounds you know, because you think of the fifties, which is again probably when drive ins were, you know, really popular was you know you think of the 50s the 60s and um you think of the music at that time and it's very g-rated because it had to be Hmm. you didn't you didn't have as much of the rebellion and the lyric writing as you did and so it's like um you know he's masking this dark message in a nice rapper that seems innocent on the outside yeah hmm. so the thing i was finding is that there's just there's so many hidden layers yeah i would have never that... guessed it i like it when and it's hidden layers that's why i love yeah. the green theater episode is because, because when artists put the little the stuff that's not quite on the surface, it pays off for the real fans who really want to dig deep and really want to get to know the music. And and that's why you can have your casual David Bowie fans and your diehard fans is because there's an appeal to both the masses and to the cultists. Mm-hmm. The cultists. That just sounds so the, well, you know, arcane. You the cult followers of, of... Yeah, I, I got you. Okay. Not like, you know, get in a circle and light some candles and like that kind of cult. Although, I don't know. We haven't heard all the songs yet, so... That's true. We're, <laughs> we're all, it's only going to get weirder and stranger That's, from here. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. I think I'm ready to dive into this uh, three-part trilogy. This this, this trilogy, yes. this kind of sandwich of songs. Mm-hmm. So we've got back from we're going back to Diamond Dogs here with uh, "Sweet Thing Candidate," "Sweet Thing Reprise." So I'm I'm considering this all one song because whenever he plays it live and you see it on live albums on the track listing, it's all included as one song. So, so where is this in the continuity? Okay. So this is this normally comes right after the song Diamond Dogs. Ooh. So and yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit. Let's kind of break this up because we can talk about the whole thing. But let's talk about specifically Sweet Thing the first iteration first and we'll move in. So we have we start with kind of a if i remember correctly we start with a very slow intro yes we do with that dissonant bass line mm, sweet yeah it, it <laughs> kind of fades in it sounds like it's reversed a little bit and then you hit that piano and then it, it kind of it's sort of moody 
in like a weird like music choice channel way and then david bowie comes in with his voice that that completely turns it into something that's that's not normal Mm-hmm. it's got a very sinister tone to it it's sinister but it's also maybe a little bit like for lack of a Alluring. better term seductive yeah so and I don't know if that plays into the theme I think it does yes it does that's what I thought so, so... let's talk about the meaning of this song if we can so pretty much this is talking about the the sexual side of Hunger City and the how one of the things that the Diamond Dogs have control over is the prostitution ring. Mm-hmm. And um, Halloween Jack is talking about his his vice and his um, his need for um anonymous sex and so pretty much this this song is him uh drawing prostitutes in Hmm. but at the same time he's kind of um he's kind of consumed by it and he knows it he's wanting to get out of it but he knows that he's you know he's he's caught in something that's not only addictive but also in this uh, in this society is um, illegal illegal it's illegal in the city mm-hmm so this is this is part of where the big brother 1984 concept kind of starts to meld and distort the the diamond dog story because this is this was a carryover from when it was originally 1984 and it's kind it's kind of reworked again to try and follow a complete storyline throughout diamond dogs you're going to be left unsatisfied mm-hmm. but he's kind of mixing and matching a little bit so it's like you've got the 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 destitute um destruction of hunger city but you've also got the totalitarian rule of 1984 kind of both playing simultaneously Hmm. it kind of sounds like mogadishu in the 90s mogadishu the uh it's the capital of somalia i remember that being a big big deal at some point in history is that it was the um Mogadishu government uh, acts pretty much inside the city, but outside it's anarchy. That's my understanding. I could be completely wrong, but it sounds like there's there might be, if you were to try to draw a storyline out of it, it sounds like there is two geographical divisions of society where there is the completely like totalitarian um government where the the culture and the way of life is totally engineered and then there is the unfortunate you know those who get screwed over by not being part of that system but at the same time 
they're not part of that system, but they're not part of any system. You know, is it fortunate or unfortunate? I don't know. That's where my mind is going. Yeah, that that could probably be the easiest way to explain it. <laughs> it was whenever I was looking all this up, it started to get very difficult to follow. And yeah. this is, and that's why, like, even though it it is a concept record, it's never like held up to the same standards as like other con- like it's not um, viewed in the same way the wall is, yeah, or to where to where people find this 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 continuous threading story. It's kind of you know, it's, it's a, a bit more amorphous. It's a concept record. It's not exactly. It's not a story. A story, mm-hmm. uh-huh. like Octavarium. Uh huh. Although Octavarium has a great ending, but whatever. We have a Dream Theater episode, by the way. If for anyone listening, <laughs> he's brought it up multiple times <laughs> now, so you should you should go check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, every time you talk about concept record, my mind goes straight to scenes from a memory. So. Um, it used to be the wall, but because of that episode, it changed. Uh, anyway, man, what still, a concept record it is. We're still talking about sweet thing. Yes. So pretty much that's that's what so Halloween think... Jack's character is the prostitute. No, he is. Um, he is acquiring prostitutes. That's why he has the the line. Uh, I. Uh, Wait, no, sorry. Switch that around. Yes, he is the prostitute because he has the line, I'm glad that you're older than me. It makes me feel that I have more power. Important and free. Uh-huh. And so, you know, he's the one that's kind of going and searching out who he can have, but at the same time, he's bound by it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very much where Bowie in real life was at that point. So we talk about in the previous episode that um, right before he hits big, he announces to the world that he's gay. But also at that time, he was married to a woman with a newborn son. And yeah. so it it created a lot of confusion and it was actually ended up being a brilliant move because it created a lot of um, intrigue and mystique about him. It was just kind of like people couldn't figure him out. And so they sought after him to try and figure out more. So I do have a question about that. Is there a possibility that he was speaking as one of his characters? That's no, he well, he legitimately was bisexual. Okay. Now he wouldn't s- stop being bisexual once he got to the eighties, or at least he wasn't openly bisexual. There's there are some rumors, but he didn't. Um, he wasn't overt about it once he got to the eighties. But in the seventies, he was married to uh, a woman named Angie for most of that period and and had one of his son uh, uh, Zoe Zoe Bowie hmm. and but yeah he had just been born whenever he made that declaration and so um, and then of course once he hit it big 
he was given everything that he ever wanted in excess, including lots and lots of partners. Mm-hmm. And so what they, they had a, uh, a very public open relationship. He was seeing whoever he wanted and she was seeing whoever she wanted. Mm-hmm. But of course that created lots and lots of stress. Yep. And so, and then eventually the marriage crumbled. So it's definitely easy to see himself in the character here when he's singing this song. There's just, it's like, it's got the feeling of being seductive while at the same time just having something just not right about it. Yeah, yeah I got that feeling. I have There's almost... Feeling. There's almost something cancerous at the core. It yeah. it um, it reminds me of this particular um, Star Trek episode. I know you guys probably have no idea what I'm talking about. It was in um, Voyager when they had all of the crew was abducted by these aliens and they put them to work in their society. They kind of assimilated them into society, um, but they wiped their memories and gave them new memories as if they'd lived there for their entire lives. And so they were sort of grafted in, and they didn't know anything different. But there was still that innate feeling in all of them that, like, there was something that wasn't quite right about the scenario that they're in. And you as a viewer watching the episode, it's like the most of the characters for pretty much the first part of the two-part episodes felt as if it was normal, as if this was, like, this was the way they had lived forever and watching those same characters act completely different was, was something that, that didn't sit well with the, the viewer. And I think that, that was kind of the feeling that I was getting from this song is that like mm-hmm. David Bowie is singing about something or, or David Bowie's character, I would say is singing about something that's totally normal to him. But to the listener, it's like, what is going on? Like, this is not a way to live. You know? Mm -hmm. Is the character in the story at this point, is he still talking to the girl? Uh, No. Like that was in Diamond Dogs? No. It sounds like... I I don't believe so. It sounds like he's talking to a mixture of himself and one of his clients. Yeah. Does that take us into uh, Candidate? Yes. Okay. Because now, now knowing what I know about Sweet Thing, everything that I know about can that I thought about Candidate is now not true. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't even know what I know about Candidate. I honestly, I didn't even have a theory. I would guess it's about some sort of election. So this is where the um, the totalitarian aspect comes from. So th- from what I could figure out, and again, at this point, Dave, David Bowie's lyrics are getting really, because they're so poetic, It's it gets really difficult to discern the meaning from them. And when I look up the meanings, it's so dense. I'm just kind of like, uh, <laughs> I don't quite know what's happening here. Yeah. 
Um, from what I could gather at this point, this is kind of the whoever is the 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 despot of this city is intentionally creating a black market need for um for sexual favors mm-hmm. and he's using it as a way to propagate his own um his own designs and his own um his own ends and he's pretty much he's he has his eye on halloween jack in particular because he's you know he's a person of influence but at the same time he's he he appears to be easy to control he's a prime candidate to um further his own power well, that's, that's weird because it, the first line of candidate is a question, and it's talking about the other candidate, as if there is two that that he's choosing between. Yeah, again, I'm. It's it's pretty tough to to try and decipher. That's okay. That's what I. I could be completely wrong about this, but. Um, that's what I was gathering from the evidence, but I, I won't say that I'm completely married to that idea. It is one of those songs that is just, it's very simple, you know, but it's, it's a, it kind of reminds me of, uh, one of our ancient Roman songs that it was like the same thing over and over again, but it got faster and faster and more intense. That's what this one is. Mm-hmm. It got, yeah, especially it got faster, when you when you get intense. to the end. Yep. Uh, when you get back to the reprise. Yep. Yep. And right. so this Before is a good point. The reprise, it's, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. Mm-hmm. And this is a good opportunity to bring up a very important collaborator of Bowie's during this period, and that is pianist Mark Garçon who we're going to really talk about in the next song the next song being our character specific title song yes that's okay cool because he really Um, goes off on that one but we'll we'll talk about it when we get there yeah so he was uh, Aladdin Sane was the first album that Garcon played on for Bowie. And Bowie specifically brought him in because he was known as an avant-garde jazz pianist. And he wanted to have something um, that was unordinary about his sound. He wanted to kind of have like, you know, amidst all of his rock and roll players someone that would just throw curveballs into the composition. And in this trilogy of songs is kind of the first time we really start to hear his unique playing style and compositional um, tendencies start to make their appearance. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be very present from this point on in the set. That is true. 
That is true. Um, and and you are ta- you're still talking about candidate, right? Yes, I am. Okay. So, I mean, there isn't much to this song other than musically, other than that buildup. Yeah. And you were telling and us that you have no idea what's going on lyrically. Um, so, in, uh, any of the listeners, check out the song. If you find anything that we should have talked about, hit us up on our social media. Look at that. Shameless plug. We do, we do get people on social media that will come in and say, you know what? You're, you Actually, you were wrong about this. You just, It's actually this, this, and this. And, you know... We like to get that. I uh, I am not someone that at all thinks that I am the be-all, end-all of information and facts. Yep. Um, so I welcome criticism and, you know, as, as long as you're nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, you'll definitely have to keep me posted on that because it's – it. It has the word can I originally had thought that this song was like one of those I don't know, kind of like you remember when in the office when the state senator came out as being gay and it was like the big hullabaloo and whatever. I thought that this was that kind of story. And it was like sort of like a commentary on like the not being accepted because of your sexuality. And, like, people will not listen to, like, your beliefs about, like, life in general because of this thing, right? That's what I originally thought it was about. Just with a little bit more of a political spin. Because I didn't know that this was a concept record, you know, before we started recording. Um, And so I thought these were all disconnected songs. But... And 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 the reason why is because I knew it was connected to sweet things. Some or I think it was. We we still have yet to figure that out. Connected to sweet thing in some way. And I knew that that was a little bit scandalous as well. And so that would be my theory: is that it somehow is tied into that. But then also you just had. The, your explanation where it's not even from like an outsider's perspective you know it's it's i don't even i still think it's him i think it's just the situation is escalating it feels like the the whole time the situation is just escalating like uh like mute math's burden where like like in sweet thing he's he's um it's like he's trying to like get clients or candidates and then in candidate he gets one. You know what I mean? Oh. Because oh. Oh. I'm going through the lyrics now and it's and like the way that it goes is like I'll make you a deal like anybody else will pretend like you're walking home and then like whenever you said it's like my set is amazing it's like he's done this a million times. He's like there's a bar at the end. It smells like a street. There's a bar at the end of the road. I'll meet you and your friend, you know? And, like, he's, like, going through, like, with this person, like, you know what I mean? Like, how they're going to meet or whatever, you know? 
and then I think this towards the end it goes off because they say like uh, for I put all I have in another bed on another floor in the back of a car in the cellar like a church like just like kind of just going down the rabbit hole is what it seems like to me that is I think you have a strong defense there I think the yeah that, that's probably it <laughs> I yeah <laughs> because yep all right well we should go ahead and get to our reprisal now where we go back to sweet thing and we start with the David Bowie sax that that good old David sax and that's him playing still correct um I do know that he plays sax whether or not he um plays it specifically there um i can i can actually do a very quick uh uh checking of that and ethan you were talking about the towards the i think it was still in the first um part of the episode you were talking about the intentionally detuned guitars was this the moment you were talking about yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I know what you're talking about. I don't think they're yeah. intentionally detuned. It sounds like there's really heavy like uh like uh, flanging or something. Yeah. But it's only in a certain range. It's it's very weird. But I know what you're talking and again, about. it's just adding dissonance. I, whether it's like purposely detuned or whatever, it's just like it, it's not all like connecting. It's on purpose. It, and it doesn't yeah. It sounds like somebody did the Eddie Van Halen thing uh, where you turn everything to 11, but it sounds like they turned the treble all the way down. And it's just mids and bass. And they maybe set the mids to half because the guitar is super, it's being pushed super, super hard, especially for that mm-hmm. time. Um, for, for amps like that, that was, a, that was a pretty hard guitar sound. But there's no treble to it. And so I think that was maybe just like, a, hey, this sounds kind of cool. Let's put it here, which for like most of this set, that's been what it is. And it's worked out. And I would say in this instance, it works out pretty well, too. It adds kind of like that sort of release, but like there's still music happening feeling. But mm-hmm. anyway, Lucas was determining if that was david yes it is okay look at that i, I also think that, sex. i also think that this song works back into uh, my theory on candidate where it's like going down the rabbit hole and then at the very end of candidate it seems like kind of the fling is over you know mm-hmm. and then right it picks back up a sweet thing and it's like he's like back in it again it's it feels so sad the beginning of the sweet thing reprise you know what i mean yeah and and one thing about it is the the cut between candidate and sweet thing really messes with me because it doesn't sound like a very clean cut it sounds it it i think it sounds like they almost skip a beat or they're like there's missing like a crash at the beginning of the reprisal or something and so it's almost like a shock that brings you back in. Yeah. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. I'm sure that if it 
happened, it was intentional. I'm sure everything on this record was exactly the way that David Bowie wanted it to be. Yeah, there there's probably not very many accidents when it comes to him. Right. Especially and, not at this point. Right. And and well also to me like there's I don't think there's anything that he would have done on accident and then be like, oh that sounds cool. You know, I think it, I think everything was pre planned except for the oh no I can't make this about nineteen eighty four. Um, mm-hmm. which of course is like that's an extenuating circumstance it's not like oh hey check out this riff you know and then like you accidentally played the riff wrong you're like oh that's even better you know or something like that um, but no I think Ethan's right in in that like this is like he's back into it like we've lost the momentum and now it's like I'm at kind of that low-ish place in life but i don't know any different well i think he goes back to singing like boys like if you want it you know it's here it's like he crashed back down to the bottom and then he i don't know exactly what the lyrics are but it's like he almost like has it's almost like he has a moment where he's about to break out of it mm-hmm. he's like and I, I can only tell this by the music uh-huh. it, it's like you get that Flat six, flat seven, flat six, flat seven. And then it kind of goes to this really grungy thing. And it's like, he's definitely not out of it. It's like the whole, it's like that makes it feel like we're just back into it. Like we can't escape almost. Oh, oh, flat flat six, flat seven is a four, five over one. Is a four over one, five over one. I guess it just depends on. That's the way I hear it. I feel like me and you always talk about whether it's flat six, whether it's flat six, flat seven, one, or four, five, major six. Well, no, 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 no. Think about it. So you have that droning low note, and then you play. It's either a first or second inversion fourth. So one where the the one is on the the root. And then you just move those two higher notes up two steps. They do the same thing in reverse at the end of Mr. Blue Sky. That's what it sounds like to me. Because it's amazing the guitar, that... The guitar is going... <laughs> and that's the root note right there. But the piano is playing a chord the fourth up from that. And then it plays the chord above that, the major chord above that. I guess I'd have to go back and listen to it. That, uh, that's what it sounded like to me, but obviously, like... I, I hear four, five, flat six, flat seven. Uh, right before he starts singing? Yeah, I hear four, five, and then a flat six, flat seven on that, like in the middle of the song. But yeah, but maybe I'll have to listen to that part then, because that's what's implying that. But at the beginning, yeah, it is definitely implying that melody. At least, at least for the for the tone of the song, it feels like he he's slipping back into his addiction. He wants to break out of it, and then at the very end, it's almost like you get images of just like the the loop continuously repeating itself, like until the song ends. Yeah. 
well, okay, listeners, you can settle this debate for yourselves by listening to the song in the Spotify playlist in the description. There's another plug. Look at that. I'm on a roll. But um, no, I think you're right. That towards the end of the song, there is that like, whatever it is. And it's very like, it's such a quick turnaround for that riff. Yeah. And it's like so simple. It's almost like, it's almost like droning in your head. Like if you've ever had your heart beat in your ears, it's like that almost. Well, and there's a lot of other weird guitar stuff. Like there's just, I think it just adds to the chaos. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where that's where I feel like it's just like, I'm, I'm just in the machine, you know, now it's just a part of who I am and what I do. And it feels like the tempo goes up. Yeah, I think it does. And this is another one that I was talking about, like with, uh, with mute maths burden. That mm-hmm. this kind of follows the same storyline where towards the end it's almost like he's mindless. Yeah. <laughs> like like um Lucas said, like Jesse at the at the parties where he's just doped up on drugs and doesn't yep. care. It has that feeling. Well, and we talked about this in our ancient Greek podcast, which was a way that they were adding uh dissonance and tension and release was to increase the tempo. Yeah. And I feel like then this last part is just kind of adding to the madness. It's like you have a completely new riff with completely different sounds with a weird kind of guitar, whatever going on above it. And the tempo is slowly speeding up and you just get the vibe where it's just like, it's kind of unsettling, but purposefully, I guess, Lucas, what's your, what is this last reprise? Do you have a, do you have a, an idea on the concept? I honestly, I think that you guys are nailing exactly what's going on here. Really? Yeah. Look at us. Wow. We're get, we're getting better as we go. <laughs> yeah. We're getting better as we go. From a from a music theory standpoint, somehow we got to the meaning of <laughs> the simplest bass line in the whole set. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Uh, that's crazy. I well, say, I think knowing we... that knowing the storyline of the song, and I said this before we started recording, because the first time that I listened through the set, especially this uh, kind of sweet thing melody, this part specifically, I was just like, man, this just feels kind of weird just to be weird, you know? And with the other songs, like in the past, and I could probably say this more in Final Thoughts, but it's like, until you like know the history and know the meaning behind the song, like, the meaning behind the song dictates a lot of what you would want the sounds to be. And so now that I'm, now that I know the context, I'm not as like, I'm not as like the sounds are more palatable because they fit into the story. It was the same thing with the, the growling, like on, um, on the, Oh no, I forgot the name of the band. Yeah. The Opeth episode, whenever I figured out that the growling was like for an artistic expression, I was like, Oh yeah, that's great. It's now it is now palatable because I know why it's there. Right. And I'm starting to feel the same thing about David Bowie. Well, there you go. There we go. Look at that. I think we can go I ahead and move it, on to the I guess, next that, song. That's what I was about to say. And Aladdin Sane is our I'm next curious song. on this one too, because this one is um 
we really go bonkers here. Yeah, this, this is the one that I think is the um is the most avant garde and the most um non palatable really? for people that uh, out of the set. I would say so. I would agree with that. This one to me sounds like it has the spirit behind it of Lane Staley, where it's like the vocals are just completely insane. Like he's not even I I don't know, like like I don't know what the vocal melody is to be honest. I'm sure it's just some weird chromatic thing that's going on. And he's literally is saying insane. And so it has that feeling of like mindlessness, but also I am going insane and I love it, but also I don't really have any feelings. I don't know. It's weird. It's very mysterious in the same way that like Allison Chains is at some points. So that that was sort of the feeling that I got from this song. And I don't know if that was intentional. I'm sure it was because like it is saying insane. Yes. But I don't know. So so can you, Lucas, before we get too far, explain to us the meaning? So this is um, his anti-war song. And, you know, Vietnam is still going on, although it's in its final stages at this point. But, and this is also, again, you're thinking of um, this is Ziggy Goes to America. And so America in particular, you know, they're the main force in Vietnam fighting this war. And this is his tale of an American soldier that has been driven insane by the war. Hmm. Wait, but they do say now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do remember hearing that the soldiers who went to Vietnam were not necessarily universally loved when they came back home. No, but the chorus is saying we love Aladdin Sane. Yes, so... I think that this is the the media trying to um, trying to smooth over the aspects of the war, as well as it could also be him talking into his own mind. Because at this point, this is when the vocals are the most deranged. Yeah, and um. Because what he said about it is that he was just like, you have to truly be insane to want to go off and fight in the war. And so it's almost just like you're kind of got to be insane to begin with if you're going to go volunteer to fight in a war that you don't understand and could possibly die in. Mm-hmm. And... um. And at the same time, I think that this line is also his commentary on David Bowie himself. That this is, you know, obviously now he's at the point to where everybody does love him. And I think that this song also has a lot of poignancy when you think about his previous character's title song, Ziggy Stardust. Mm Mm-hmm. Ziggy Stardust is one of the most commercial sounding songs he's probably ever written. 
It's one of his biggest hits. It's one of his most loved songs. It's it's super simple. It's short. It's got a very melodic guitar line. Um, and he creates Ziggy Stardust to be this this hero, this conqueror. That Because uh, the whole point of Ziggy Stardust is that he's this rock and roll alien that comes to save the world. Mm-hmm. But then the next album you have what everyone is going to assume is the is the next Ziggy uh, Aladdin Sing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you have this atonal, creepy, deranged sounding song, especially when you get to the line we love Aladdin Sing. It's almost like he's he's like he's almost trying to hypnotize people into into loving Aladdin same, but at the same time he's presenting this very unbeautiful package to it. I ooh, I I almost see it as being like uh like I've used this term once before in this episode, but like a cult. Like we love Aladdin Sane and we're going to follow him to the ends of the earth and we're the ones who are insane and we're following somebody who who also it's like the blind leading the blind is sort of the mm-hmm. sort of the feeling that i get from it and and of, of course maybe that ties into like the the war theme of it but it it had it sort it does have that feeling that there is that Aladdin Sane is a very different type of leader. He's not come to save the world. He's just he's just a guy who is going insane, who for some reason has people who are loyal to him. I mean, you you know how how most cults are. Mm-hmm. You know. So actually, so. And here's kind of the, I'll give you guys a little bit of background. We originally were going to record this episode earlier, and I'm realizing now that just my my research has kind of faded a little bit. That's why I've been a little fuzzier on the details. But I remember seeing this. I just re-looked up the lyrics, and the chorus is actually saying, who will love Aladdin Sane? Not we love Aladdin Sane. Oh! Yeah. That changes a lot. And as I saw that, I was just like, I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that. Just It's escaped my mind. That, that changes <laughs> completely everything because now it's like – now it's like the feeling that it's like he's helpless. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just like, okay, then that's when it makes sense with the whole war thing. What do you think the just-in-case-of-sunrise means in the lyrics? Um just in case it's um, I'm looking where just in time for sunrise yeah there it is it's a yeah battle cries and champagne just in time for sunrise but then later like towards the end of the song they'll say just in case of sunrise Um... oh maybe it's more like just in case we survive to the next day because you know war yeah i mean champagne is is a 
a drink known for celebrating. And so it could be that this is talking about propaganda. Just again, trying to in some way justify what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, this this makes a lot more sense now knowing that it's like because it's easy because yeah until yeah. i had looked at the lyrics even when i was listening to it, it sounds like he's saying "Ooh, we love aladdin sane but mm-hmm. he's saying who will love aladdin sane oh but yeah completely which completely changes the context it com- of it yeah it does it completely changes it and and my mind had to reset a little bit uh, and i That's- think with the war thing because it's the beginning is just talking kind of about the propaganda of war in terms of like young boys going to war you know mm-hmm. and the battle cries and champagne just in time for sunrise it's like it, it is talking about like oh it's so great you know like like oh it, war is awesome you know uh-huh. and then it starts to take a term where it says motor sensational meaning like oh the cars you know everything's great oh maybe you'll go to paris or maybe you'll you know or maybe hell you know <laughs> yeah and then it's clutches of sad remains waits for aladdin sane but you'll make mm-hmm. it you know and then we talk about millions weep a fountain just in case of sunrise but then right whenever he says we will love Aladdin Sane, which I think that he's talking about like m- m- that's a cultural critique maybe on culture as a whole. Like we love soldiers, you know? Mm-hmm. Like who will love the people that are going out and like killing people and going to war? We will. And then that's whenever it gets really weird. Anytime that, that he says like we'll love Aladdin Sane, the first time that he says it, weird piano solo. The second time he says it, weird piano solo. So let's so let's talk about this piano solo because that's kind of the the defining aspect of this song. I love it, and it's and it's it polarizes people. There I love are it so a, much. I love it too. Oh my gosh! See the first the first time I listened to um, this set, I was completely brain dead after the trilogy that we just witnessed and so Uh my i was kind of just sitting in the moment of the music for this song and literally and just not even trying to put anything within context within musical context relative to the rest of the song and so listening to that that piano solo it it was cool because it sounded like it sounded like somebody on a grand piano in front of an audience just showing off and trying to like get the audience like all riled up and be like, Oh, look at all what I can do. And like trying to put on a show is what it sounded mm-hmm. like. And so put spinning it into that context. I really, really, really like this piano solo. And also it's like, it has that appeal of like, here's the other dream theater plug. Hopefully not the final. Okay. Maybe hopefully the final Korean theater plug of the episode. <laughs> Um, but, but in particularly in our, I think our third and fourth songs of our dream theater set beyond this life and the miracle and sleeper, there were really weird guitar solos that 
were very unorthodox and they were kind of choppy and they were kind of weird and they hit weird notes and it didn't yeah as much like a guitar solo as much as it did just kind of like a let's see which direction i can jolt you and that's what this piano solo did there's a part in there mm-hmm. where he literally just hits a note over and over and over again that's not even in rhythm and there are parts where he just hits random notes towards the top and it it if we didn't have the bass and drums doing something as simple as they were doing this mm-hmm. would have been the worst thing in the world this would you know you could- I counter I counter your uh, imagining the showman thing Mm-hmm. I counter that with I think that this solo is purposefully bad. I think it's purpose purposefully um, unorthodox. I think it's I, purposefully I, not tonal. I think it's purposefully. I think. I think I see what you're meaning, but I wouldn't use the word bad to describe it. I it guess purposefully does for, for like the. For the, if if we go back and we're talking about the war thing, yes, because there's two piano solos and they both happen after the lyric "We will love Aladdin Sane," and I think we, whenever I think this is a way to exemplify the insanity, and so I think it's good because if you're looking at it as like art, like the purpose of the piano solo is to symbolize insanity that I think it's really good. But any, anyone that's just listening and they're expecting like a, a traditionally good piano solo. It's like, that's it's, it's not it, you know, like he's, yeah. Like there are points where he's, ba- he's, it literally sounds like his fist is banging on the piano, like just in whatever spot that his fist lands and he'll, he'll just go down and just put his hand on the bottom six notes, you know? Right. And just keep them there, and then just, like, kind of wherever his fingers go, that's where, it at, where it's at, and it's dissonant. And I don't think that, other than it just being for tension, I think that, which it does a really good job at, because the first time I heard it, I was just like, why are they doing this? And now that I know the meaning, it's just like, oh, they're doing it. To for tension, I get, and, mm-hmm. and then right after they're done with it, right after he goes back into singing, it's over. I and it goes back to being normal, and then right whenever they say we'll love Aladdin saying again, it goes right back into the insanity. I get what you yeah. mean. I get what you mean about it being intentionally bad, but I use I wouldn't use the term bad because it serves the purpose that it was meant to serve, and I think that if 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 somebody else had tried to write this piano solo other than David Bowie's pianist, I think it wouldn't have been as good. There are so many points in the solo where he does something that's completely weird that we wouldn't even think to do that. We would be like, Oh, that's too crazy to do. But, but I think whenever you say that David Bowie's piano player wrote the solo, I think that you I like, didn't, I don't mean he wrote the solo. I mean laid down the track. Well, I can the... I can tell you what the story behind it is. Go ahead. Let's do that. So, originally 
he comes in and plays like uh, a blues piano solo, very simple. And David Bowie goes, no, no, no. You're an avant-garde pianist, correct? And he was just like, yeah. He was just like, then play that. And this was one take improvised right after he told him to do that. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, like, but, but Ethan, you see what I mean? It's like, no, I, I, would, I agree with you that. I, as an art form, like that the piano solo does exactly what it should do. But I, I guess to the to the person that's listening to this, that's going to go listen to the playlist after we talk about it, you're going to get to this song and the piano solo is going to hit and your brain is not going to like it if you oh, don't my, know My brain liked it instantly. My brain. My, my, brain, my brain didn't like it the first time. I was just kind of like, what's what's happening? I think and then the more I listened to it, the more I was just like, okay, I like this now. That That's true. David Bowie is like that. But my thing is, I still musically do not like it because I just don't. Because it's like freeform jazz and I don't like that either. My- but like now knowing, like knowing what it's supposed to, it's like, have you ever, guys ever gone into like one of those like, uh, I don't want to say like distinguished art galleries, but it's like, you know how you have like your classical art galleries that have like all the famous pieces. And then you go into like a contemporary art museum that has like new artists in it, you know, mm-hmm. and you go into that and there's some paintings that you go up to where you're just like, what? Yep. This is that where it's like this, this song is the contemporary art of, of like actual, like, practical art which this was this was the period when that art really started to um enter the mainstream and so my thing is that the piano solo it is music and i guess this sounds weird to say it this way where it's like the same thing as like whenever i walk up to a painting like that and i look at it i'm like this painting is less about it being a painting and more about how the painting hits me and and like emotionally and i think the same for the piano solo now that i know that it's there and why what the purpose is i was like this piano solo is less about the musicality and notes and more about its functionality like and how it makes me feel emotionally and how it hits me in the song that's really weird that i instantly liked it being the technical one of the technical people of the three of us and lucas didn't being the more emotional listener. Yeah, but then, you know, I do also have my side of me that just loves all things weird, and that kind of won itself over for me. Yeah. I I think, and of course, learning about everything made it interesting as well. I think, to me, the most interesting aspect is the fact that you've got two albums back-to-back that have title songs of their characters you've got the first one Ziggy Stardust of a savior coming to save the world and the next one is a man gone mad destroyed by war and rejected by the people around him and so literally just one literally just one album later 
it's that contrast I just think of that the, really appeals. I think it's just the subversion of what people are expecting on the follow-up to Ziggy yeah. Stardust. It's not like this was three albums later. This was less than a year after. That's, that's pretty crazy. Ziggy's, yeah. I, I wonder I, if there's concert footage or or some concert recording of like the the first concert like like uh, like the first tour of this album because i wonder what the crowd's reaction is where it's just like a lot of people are probably going expecting the ziggy stardust vibe well here's the thing um as big as ziggy stardust was it wasn't a number one album in america it went to like number three and Aladdin Sane was a number one record. That's <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> that was a critique of America, which is number one. Yeah. That's funny. Do you think so that people it's... in the seven, like we talked about, and, and we'll probably talk about this in a very future music history, but like America as a whole, like we talked about the, I guess, postmodernist art movement. And that's probably not the correct term. I have, I had a friend that's an artist and he would like, he gets really, really um, picky about definition of terms with art. But like the whenever I say postmodern, just like the weird art, just to be weird, you know, just for emotional uh-huh. purposes. Yeah, I feel like that movement was really happening there, and and David Bowie's rise. It's hard to say whether it was a part of the movement or it it started the movement or it was on the front of the wave of the movement, but... I would say it was on the front of the wave. All all of that stuff kind of combining into his rise to number one in America, even though it's... I mean, I wouldn't say it's weird, but, like, especially after listening to, like, I mean, the title, kind of the title character song, it's like, it's not Elton John. No, like you know, you know what I'm saying. Like we are absolutely not, not in Elton John land. We're not where everybody else. This isn't Stevie Wonder. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think that that's just, that to me that's one of the most fascinating, and that's what makes me like the song more. Is just going the balls to make this song. Yeah, after Ziggy start and to to give it the title track and to create your whole persona around this song I think is so gutsy and I just have to applaud him for it I think that the song builds up to both piano solos very well I think it's a good catharsis for the song I don't think we've got to the intended cathartic point of the set because we still Not yet. have one song to talk about. Yeah, we've been talking quite a long time, and we still got one song we, left. We should <laughs> go ahead and get there, if you guys don't have anything about this song. I mean, I have more things. Well, but, we'll go ahead and share them if you want to. David Bowie. Tomorrow is too late. <laughs> no, I think, I think I agree with Lucas. And, and I think it's a, it's a tasteful use of avant-garde is probably the best way to say it. It's a tasteful yeah. Yeah. use of postmodernist writing without with without the song being... Because, I mean, gosh, we could talk about... The, the other thing that struck me that we didn't talk about was, like, the modal change between the verse and the chorus. Yeah. Mm, yeah. 
didn't even talk about that. Like I was just, it's, it's just like, what's happening? <laughs> but it yeah. makes it feel so strange. But it's like, good. isn't it like a major six? I don't know. It goes up it goes from, down what, like from whatever chord it's on. It goes up a half step, and then it just. It's just weird. It goes up and then it keeps going up and then it does that all in one note. It just goes way up to somewhere and then it goes way down to somewhere and then somehow it finds itself back yeah. at one. And then it just settles back into the verse without even... It's it's crazy. So there is more to talk about about the song because I, I feel like if you haven't listened to the set yet, it because <laughs> we're talking about this song like we, we're getting to the best parts of the song immediately without giving any context because yeah. we've all listened to That's it. That's true. If you haven't listened to the song it starts out really normal. Uh, I don't want to say mellow but for for David Bowie it's, mellow. It's, it's actually quite beautiful. It really is really nice. It sounds like um, like old like like you'd hear in an old casino. Yeah. In like the twenties. In the song how I mean, it's bass drums, some weird synth stuff, and a voice. There's a little and bit a, of guitar in there. Yeah. But it's and very few and far it's between. Pretty bare bones, but melodically and between sections there's a big difference. And yeah, go just go listen to it. Yep. Go listen to it. And we can move on to the next song. Unless you want to listen to it after we talk about the next song. So you can listen yeah. to it all, all at once. Pause this right now <laughs> and go listen to it. Yeah. That that's how I envision some people doing it. I don't know. You can There's like, you, oh wow, that's really good. I should probably listen to it because I'm completely lost. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't listen to the podcast. I just well, okay. I listen to the podcast afterwards, but I I just recorded it after listening to the song, so I wouldn't know. But anyway, we have our final song, and that is Time. I think that this song is technically the best song out of the six, but it's not my favorite. I would agree with that, actually. I I think that on paper, that this song is the best one. And this is the one... And this is the one that I rank the highest on the David Bowie ranked playlist. So what does it hit on the playlist? Oh, man. I should look at it. I think I want to say off memory, I put it at like number one, two, three, four, five, six. Number seven. Wow. I got to listen to one through six then because this song is really good. Um, David Bowie has a lot of songs. It, <laughs> he does. There's a lot of... So that's really good considering... There's a lot of instrumentation here, and it's it has the feeling of like you're listening to a Broadway soundtrack, sort of. You know what I mean? Yeah, but a but a really demented Broadway. It like soundtrack. yeah yeah like I can't even think of an example other than Hunchback of Notre Dame because that soundtrack is amazing. But it. Uh, it I could see like some Phantom of the Opera vibes. Oh, that's true, but like not like the main theme, more like a one of the one of the side songs, sort of. Yeah, where you've kind of got this 
this deranged character and this is like his theme where he does his big piece and it does i think it does have the same chord progression where it has a six minor that goes down to a four chromatically but uh, yeah that that opening piano line immediately tells you that we're still in this insane headspace yeah and there's kind of the Hotel California guitars, harmonizing guitars. I think it sounds like the Eagles um, that are kind of pervading throughout the song. There's like a harpsichord. He has different ways of singing different words. When he sings scream, he doesn't sing it. He literally has the, he literally kind of, he kind of screams it. Yeah. You know? And so it's kind of pushing us back to that, uh, back to future legend, where we started this whole ordeal. Good Lord, that was forever ago. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Where every time he would say something, there would be a sound effect that would accompany it and would bring more life to it. And that's sort of what he's doing here with time. So what is the song about? I mean, I'm assuming it's something about time. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so this song is, you know, just about the um, the the wear of time that he's already feeling. And there's an interesting parallel because, again, we've got some more direct continuation from Ziggy Stardust. In fact, the last song of the said in our previous episode was Rock and Roll Suicide, Mm -hmm. which has a very iconic opening line that says, time takes a cigarette and puts it in your mouth. And time is seen as this comforting figure that, um, you know, is a friend to you. And now, immediately in the next album time is this um, enemy is this enemy exactly he's portrayed as this sinister figure and um, you know he he has a very strange line where he says he flexes like a whore falls wanking to the floor yeah like Uh, what he's early on in the song too Mm-hmm. And so it's like, good lord, what's the rest of the song going to be, you know? So pretty much just kind of almost just like, got, um, time just uses us. Yeah. And it's, you know, time doesn't care for, for us. We are passing through time. Time is not passing through us. Um, you know, it just, it's, it chews you up and spits you out. Hmm. Behold the flesh. (laughs) (laughs) And just, you know, at this point, you know, he's kind of starting to look, and this is where he's starting to have his disillusion with fame. Hmm. Where he's he's already feeling that he's um, that he's losing time, even though he's still very young. He's He's the same age as you and me, Ethan, at this point. Wow. And he already feels like time is escaping him. 
And I mean, at this point, he is definitely now fully on the self-destructive path. I mean, it may very well be a combination of that and then also the, like, this romanticization or whatever. I've been trying to make large words today that don't (laughs) exist. Romanticizing youth. And, like, this idea that, like, oh, once you're 30, it's all over, you know. But, like, Mm -hmm. in reality, he had a very, very long career after this as well. Yes. I feel like this goes back to, we said this in the first time, where it's like you can kind of see some nihilistic uh, worldview tendencies Yeah, in his, in his writing, where he's just like, ah, it doesn't really, like, I feel like he's almost like, it doesn't really matter. Like, we're just passing through anyways, and we're going to die, and it doesn't matter. Time's just going to use us. And he has, like, a really a cynical view of mm-hmm. You're not evicting world. time. Yeah. Yep. Musically, though, again, sound palette, great. That I mean, that piano sounds amazing. The bass still sounds just as good as ever. Like, there's the little backup vocals. It's a pretty... I mean, it's just a well-written song. There's really no... Yeah. There's no gimmicks, you know? Like, mm-hmm. not that the other songs that we listen to are gimmicks, but there's nothing really to, like, pull out to be like, that thing made the song. It's just a... Everything about this. Yeah, this good. this one I don't think had a moment necessarily that was a catharsis. I think that the whole I would song say the self is. Yeah, but I would say if you were to pinpoint the we should be on by now is kind of yeah. the point where it's all bursting. Oh, open. I yeah. forgot about that part. Oh my gosh, yeah. how could I? Because that's my favorite it's, part. Again, it's it's a good. <laughs> it's a it's a great. Again, it's just a great part of the song, but it like there's no oh that chorus is so weird. Oh the the avant garde piano solo, you know. It's mm-hmm. just a song that's just recorded I well. Think, I think really to well, an extent, really Ethan, well. you're right, but also at this because I forgot about the final part, but also that refrain at the end, it just it just hits you different. Yeah, it does. And I don't know, like, what the meaning of we should be home by now. Where's home? What's now? Well, it's not we should be home. We should be on. Oh. We should be on by now. Okay. Now, whether that means we should be on as in, like, we should be on from here. Like, we should be on our way and we're stuck. Mm Mm-hmm. Or saying that, you know, we should be on as in, we should be on stage, the stage of life. Mm-hmm. We've wasted our time up on here. We sh- By this point, we should have already uh, been doing something worthwhile. Hmm. Um, I think that that could be a little bit open to interpretation. I think cool. it's meant to be. Because it's like it's not clearly connected to the rest of the stuff. Yeah. You know, there's not there is no there's no motion through space in this song. It's all about time. It's all about uh-huh. motion through time. And so when we're talking about we should be on moving on, on where, on what, it is kind of mysterious and it's a great place to end. It's 
you're right. There is a cathartic moment I completely forgot about because we've been talking mm-hmm. about David Bowie for like what almost two hours now. Wow, uh, this one I- segment is 109 minutes right now. So <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that ending with Aladdin Sane, even though we get a great moment, I don't think it 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 doesn't leave for whenever we do our next part of David Bowie I think time is a is a good uh, a good last taste before part three yep time is a great I can't get over that refrain because it's like it's not one of those where you can't do it you know like like peace sells you know if you if they drug out the peace cells but who's buying for too many times, it would have gotten old very quickly. Because it's like it is so quick and repetitive and it's good, but it's like you can only do it so much. This refrain, they could have honestly they could have done it for like ten minutes and I wouldn't have cared. Because it's so tasteful and like it's very sparse and there's also kind of the Na 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 na, or whatever he sings between them, sort of like uh, the end of Deliverance when we did our Opeth episode. Yeah, uh, where there's like that da 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 da. You know, I can't quite remember the 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 rhythm. Da 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 they they did that over and over again that that ending section is like three minutes but because they put uh, those little pieces in between they can drag they could have dragged that out over and over and over and over again and it's also so good and such a long repetition that by the time you loop again you've pretty much forgotten you know your ears have forgotten everything that's heard and so that's sort of what they do with the we should be on by now or what he does. He wrote the song, but that's what the band does with that um, refrain is because it's not, we should be on by now. We should be on by now. We should be on. It's we should be on by now. And then you wait six seconds and he sings it again. It allows that breathing room that's required for something like this to be repeated over and over and over and over again and be very mysterious. I like it. I just really like the refrain. I just, how did I forget? I feel so bad. I feel so guilty for, gosh, I guess that's a testament to like how well the song flows. Yeah. And then also, how good it is because I feel so guilty for remembering it. Great work on the set. Great work on Thank the you. set, Lucas. It was good. It was good. All right. Well, then we'll go ahead and take our uh, next break here. When we come back, we're going to get into our final thoughts. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan, back with the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with our second segment, which is the Spotify playlist, and we went through 
Future Legend, Diamond Dogs, Rebel Rebel, Drive-In Saturday, Sweet Thing, Candidate, Sweet Thing Reprise, Aladdin Sane, and finally Time, all from David Bowie's kind of uh, our part two of David Bowie's life. And now we are on to our final thoughts. So, Grant, um, in the second episode of David Bowie, um, have your thoughts on David Bowie changed? Has anything kind of clicked for you? What are your final thoughts? Well, anybody who's listened to the first episode, which should be everybody, by the way, um, just saying, you know, because David Bowie's a great artist. You should know I wasn't on that episode. And so I kind of had to study up about David Bowie just in general. And he's one of those artists who I've always heard being so influential and so Mm -hmm. important. And when he died, it was a big deal. And I didn't understand why. I, I couldn't even name a single David Bowie song. But I did know that image of him, that Aladdin Sane image. And so I knew he was a big deal. I knew that he was an important musical figure. But he's always been a historical as well as a musical enigma to me. Because I don't really know what era he's in. I don't really know what type of music he is. And every time somebody says, oh, that's a David Bowie song, it's like it's always a surprise to me. Like Fame, I had no idea it was a David Bowie song for the longest time. Because <laughs> every cover band around here plays that. but it's And so it just became like one of those songs that you always hear. And I never ask questions because I like, you know, half those songs you don't even know anyway. And... I I don't know. I think this episode, as well as the previous episode that Lucas did with Justin, has helped me understand David Bowie as a person and also understand, like, his personas and, like, how his life is influencing those and what type of music he has been making up to this point and where he fits historically and relative to other musicians and this podcast is really like i hope that the listeners are getting the same experience because both these episodes have really helped me learn about david bowie and i'm starting to understand why he's so important and i'm starting to realize that i think i'm gonna become like a david bowie appreciator i think i I think i'll become the, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to go listen to Diamond Dogs and Aladdin Sane now because the representation on this set was so good. Mm-hmm. And I want to listen to more. And I cannot wait for our next David Bowie episode where we go into his next character and that next phase. It's, it, I cannot wait for the next episode i cannot wait to learn more i think that's the that's the best case scenario Mm -hmm. is i can't wait to listen for more listen to more and i cannot wait to learn more yeah i i feel like my final thoughts are always the same because i always go into because 
one thing I love about the show is the the range of artists that we cover is pretty insane. Yeah. Uh, in that, like, I mean, Opeth, David Bowie, Queen, uh, just, I mean, the spectrum is just, it is expanding, you know? Mm-hmm. And coming into this, I I knew of David Bowie, and, and whenever I found out that we were doing David Bowie, I was like, ah, crap. You know, I don't really like David Bowie, you know, um, because it, I was just like, it's just weird, you know? Yeah. And and I felt like it was weird for the sake of being weird. Mm-hmm. And um, as pretty much I say in all my final thoughts, it's like once you figure out the motivation behind why an artist is writing a song or what the song is about or what the album is about your appreciation for the sound design and the writing and the fanfare goes way up. Um, and I was actually talking to someone about the, that something like similar to this this week, just about art in general. And we were kind of defining like what is good art, which is kind of like a really heady 10,000 foot question. Yeah. And, good and luck my, answering that. Well, my, my, my answer was just like, I feel like, good art is whenever um, you have an idea and you can execute the idea that you had and where other people like other people get what you're doing without you having to just tell them you can transmit an emotion without physically being there sort of yeah and so it's like the more artists that I get exposed to where I figure out their story and where they're writing from or the concept on songs the truly great ones which are the only ones that we talk about the good ones the good music they translate that so well where at first if you look at David Bowie from the outside you're like it's weird David Bowie's a weird guy his songs are weird I don't like avant-garde you know are all thoughts that probably everyone has or has had about David Bowie. But once you figure out how he's using all that and his vision for the projects that he's doing, then you see those as just tools in his songwriting. And then you appreciate his use and the craftsmanship that he has with the, with the talents that he has and with the tools that he uses. And so David Bowie now is more in my mind um he's like kind of transcended into a kind of that like ultra creative genius artist category you know where it's like oh dang david bowie was like a hyper musical visionary and like with where he was pushing and nobody else was pushing and so that's, I guess, my thing where it's like, I still wouldn't say that David Bowie is like my preferred listening experience. But I think that I can now confidently say that like David Bowie is deserving of all of the praise that he's gotten. <laughs> yeah. And man, you guys are going to really love next time because, in my opinion, that's where we're going next is probably creatively his most brilliant period. This is uh, 
all this that we've listened to is kind of like his his warm up, his transition. Because once we get into the late seventies and we get the thin white duke, um, we get some really really cool stuff, and I'm really excited to delve into it. Um, so I did a lot of my learning of David Bowie when we did our first episode. Um, I intentionally had picked him because I didn't know a whole lot about him. Like I, I knew more than both you guys. Cause I, you know, knew a lot of his songs from the radio and, mm-hmm. but I hadn't like sat down and listened to any of his albums or kind of had, I hadn't gotten that deep into it. And so I really would say that I became a fan making the first episode, but I still hadn't ventured past the Ziggy Stardust era. And um, doing the research for this episode and just digging more into his personal life and um, I just have found that I'm just continuing to be floored by his creative genius. And um, I've just, I've found a, several more albums that I'm going to be returning back to in my spare time. Um, even... I I, I kind of gave his cover album pinups a bad rap, but even that I kind of like has its own weird charm that I feel like I would find myself going back to in specific moods. And I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much more I can add on to that other than I was a fan before and I've become a bigger fan yeah. now. Okay. And I, so, think, I think it's sad as well. I think just to talk about his life, because we've we've crossed this a couple times where it's like just seeing what instant fame does to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hate that that's such a common theme for humans as a whole. Yeah, it's it's becoming. I'm sad because I'm finding it more and more. Yeah, that you know, and it's just because they they truly believe that it's it's everything that they want if they can only have that then everything will be perfect i think it's like a big cult like it's a big shock like i've i've seen this like have you ever seen like the like you have someone and they've like never had like a date or never had like a boyfriend or a girlfriend and their whole entire life is wrapped up in like oh, if only I like what I would I just want to be married. I just want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever and like for and years they rush through a relationship and then it's like well, the first the, the first worst. person that they get is like they put every single emotional thing in their entire life into that first relationship and then it just implodes yeah Mm -hmm. i feel like fame is the same where it's like you have your eye on the prize so hard and you blood sweat and tears into music and then once you finally get it once you finally get the girl 
or once you finally get the career that you wanted or even a lot of people whenever they get married this happens because like their whole relationship has been like man once we're married our all of our problems are going to go away once we have a kid all of our problems are going to go away <laughs> and i feel like you it's like whenever you get what you want and you're still not happy it's like you are forced to look at yourself in the mirror and be like what am i like who am i why went on this whole thing and i'm still not satisfied what does that mean for me and then i think i think that that's actually what makes people implode if, whenever if whenever not... whenever they see themselves i think people implode they just for artists not only are they seeing themselves they think that the entire world also sees them as they see themselves if you're not content with what you have, then you won't be content with what you want. Yep. So. Oh, that's deep. Well, it's just it's just final reality. Thoughts. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the final thought. That's the notable quotable right there. Yes, it is. Um, thank you, everyone, who has uh, stuck with us for this very long episode. Um. We are so thankful for everyone that supports us and helping to uh, continue to grow our channel. Um, we're getting close to that 70,000 mark, and that's that's a pretty exciting thing. So um, continue to tune in. We've got new episodes every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so that way uh, you know when our new episodes are out. And if you're not donating on uh, Patreon, you're about to miss out on something really funny. Oh yeah, we're gonna, <laughs> we've been singing his praises, but then we're gonna look at his, some of his worst songs. And, you gotta get the bad uh, ones out of the way to get to the good ones, you know. That's that's right. He definitely. Uh, and then make sure to follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook. And please make sure that you listen to the songs. It would be really sad if you got all the way through this episode and then didn't listen to the songs, even if you've heard them before. Uh, hearing them in this new uh, uh, order will absolutely enhance the way that you hear the songs. And... Um, that's it. Until next time, I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Good music.